This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this is someone we both found fascinating, plays into the fitness world. We're talking about John Burke. His father started the company Trek Bicycles. And so we talked about the history of the company, where they started and where they've come. Well, and it's a wide-ranging conversation. What I liked about it is certainly on brand for both of us, Carol, as you say. We love this company. I think we both have Trek bicycles and we followed the company to some extent, but it was an emotional interview and in some ways talking about his father, but also talking about how you run a company in this day and age, how you hold on to your employees, how you treat your employees and even how you treat your customers. Check it out. Started by his dad, Dick Burke, and a partner some 40 years ago, created their own brand of bikes. They did it building them in a barn. The barn is still around. (laughs) So is the brand. So we want to bring in um, John Burke. He's president of the family-owned and Wisconsin-based Trek Bicycles. Um, So nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. All right. So take us back to the beginning, because this is, as Carol said, this is a family business. Candidly, there aren't a lot of those around anymore, certainly that have stayed in this way. But it's also employee owned. There's something special about this company. Tell us what it is. You know, for sure, it's a family company. Um, The family owns the business. There's an ESOP. The ESOP owns 28% of it. But I think it's more than the ownership. It's the feeling. It's the feeling when you come to Trek that it's a family. We make sure we take care of everybody in the family. And it's just an amazing place. But How how do you do that, John, in a day where I feel like so many companies are focused on the bottom line? And I know I'm guessing being family owned, it gives you some, some leeway to do that. Yeah. Well, but you've got to th- be profitable I th- still. I think it starts with values. Yeah. Um, you know, it's my mother and my father um, were are my mother's still alive. They're amazing people. And they really started out with to whom much is given, much is required. And, you know, our family's been so fortunate. But you take a look at everybody at Trek, and I always view all those people as they're part of the family. And being part of the family, there are high expectations, but it also means that we're there to support everybody, that everybody gets taken care of, and that we try and do some amazing things together. And luckily, over 40, you know, 40 plus years, we've done some pretty incredible things. And you've been there for 30 plus mm-hmm. years. You joined in 1984. Was that a, a <laughs> foregone conclusion that you were going to go into the business? Or were you one of those kids is like, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to go work for the old man? You know, I, I wasn't sure I was going to do that. And then uh, I worked a summer. I was working in the warehouse. And when I got done working in the warehouse, when I got all the packages out, when the UPS guy came, it was Frank, the UPS guy. He came at 3.30. Um, after I got all the boxes out, I'd, I'd run into the sales office. And I'd get on the phone and I'd sell. And I was pretty good at selling. And that summer, the bug bit me and Mm -hmm. I knew I'd I'd go into the business. There were no conversations, mom, dad, I think I want to go paint or be a lawyer or something like that. No, (laughs) no. You know, my father, my father had one simple rule. He said, your your last name will get you in the door and the rest is up to you. Right. And my last name got me in the door and um, I did pretty well. But it was also at a time, you know, I started at Trek in 1984 and Trek was doing great 76 to 84, and almost the minute I start, it just crashed. What happened? Oh, you know, my father owned the company, but he didn't run the company, and and the customers didn't really like the company, and the company didn't really like the customers. Hmm. And so I was a sales rep. I was I had like 12 states, and I'd drive around in my little Chevrolet Cavalier, 
And uh, it was the greatest education you could ever have. And, you know, I saw every, all the wrong things that we were doing. And I said, you know, if I ever got in a position of, of power, I'd, I'd be able to change those things. And, you know, because the company was small at that time, my father ended up coming out. He replaced the management and uh, I was 24 and all of a sudden I was in charge of sales and customer service. And we could make changes. And we did really, really fast. My father loved customers. We changed the culture of the company. And uh, it was a good thing. What's the dynamic? I always think about with a family-owned business and you bring in, you know, um, the kids into the business. How are they perceived, especially when you're younger and even though you grew up in it yeah. and you've got employees who've been at the company for yeah. a long time, what's that interaction like? Well, you know, my one of, one of my nicknames, and I have a number of them, was Kid Burke. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I was, I was always just so proud of my father. So really, it never bothered me. I didn't see the expectations, even though I'm sure they were there. There, there was work to be done, and uh, I always looked at it as as an honor that I was that I was his son. I never looked at it as a burden. Did you he, feel like you had to work harder though? Yeah, because Absolutely. you were his son. No, I, well, because I was his son, and because the family owned the business, I yeah. had to. You know, you had to lead from the front, and you had to. You had to get the job done. And tell us about your relationship with your father, because you wrote a book about it. I yeah. mean, this was, I mean, it's something I, I actually looked at the book a little bit. I'm definitely buying it. Sorry, dad, I'm giving you a, the, you know, like a preview of your Christmas present. But like, <laughs> I'm going to buy this book for my yeah. dad. Uh, tell us about why you wrote the book, what it was that inspired this relationship. You know, he was, he was an amazing person. And, uh, you know, I spent my, you know, I spent my life with him, but, you know, he and I also built Trek. Right. And it was, you know, he and I were really close and uh, we were the last two people in the room. And, you know, it was, you know, a great highlight of my life. But uh, he was super fit. You know, he ran five New York City marathons. Uh, he and I ran Boston together three times. Um, he was super fit. And uh, when he was 73, he had a problem with a valve in his heart and he went in to get it fixed. And he was one out of the hundred who, who didn't come out. But at his 70th birthday party, he said, he pulled out out of his suit jacket, I'll never forget, he pulls out these yellow legal pads. He had six pages he wanted to give a speech at his birthday party. Only the family was there. And, you know, he talked, and, and the one thing I always remember, he says, I have one last great thing to do. He goes, I'm not sure what it is, but I got one last great thing in me. And he had done a number in his life. But in the end, the last great thing was the way he died. He was in the hospital for 88 days. He taught amazing life lessons throughout his life. But those last 88 days were his best days. And so after he passed, I thought, I'm just going to write a book for my two kids because I really want them to understand their grandfather. And I got it. I finished it. And a couple of people read the, read the proof and they said, you should turn this into a book. So I did. What, so, did, what did your kids say about that book? Well, you know, it's interesting because I had both of them, after I decided to make it a book, I had both of them, you know, proof the book, and they came back with a couple of suggestions. But you know, I think they're as proud of him as I am. Yeah. And so how does his sort of legacy pervade the company uh, at this point? Because obviously he was larger than life for, yeah. for you, and and obviously for the, for the company, there aren't that many – Again, as we've been talking about, yeah. family-owned companies, especially where it's imprinted. You know, someone said to me recently, there are a lot of family companies out there, but there aren't that many like Sam Waltons. I mean, this is a an yeah. example of that in many ways that <laughs> the personality of the place reflects 
the founder? Yeah, I think, um, you know, somebody told me before they before he died that um, his body would die, but his spirit would live on. And uh, that is so true. And so, you know, I, I have a conversation with him a couple times a week. But uh, his legacy at Trek is um, do the right thing. And for sure, his legacy is take care of the customer. I mean, he was just he was all about the customer. If you do the right thing for the customer, if you run a really good business, the rest will take care of itself. And he was really strong on that. Is the next generation of your family involved or how involved are they? Well, my uh, daughter, um, she works at Trek. She works in the marketing department. She's in charge of the Women's Advocates Program right now. Mm-hmm. She spent a year working at retail, so she's involved in the business. Um, my mother is on the board at Trek. And my son, he uh, runs a marketing company in Milwaukee. All right. So let's talk about the scope of the company a little bit, because, you know, from 1984 to now, a lot of things have changed in in the broader market, (laughs) clearly, um, when it comes to the broader fitness movement. You know, you were involved, I believe, with Bush 43, President George W. Bush in, in physical fitness. What have you seen in the sort of mega trends that are underneath all this that have helped propel Trek forward? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a couple. If you just take a look at cycling in general, um, you've got uh, a health issue, especially in this country. You've got an incredibly high obesity rate. You have people not moving. You have people looking at screens, and that's one mega trend. The other mega trend you have is congestion. And here we are in New York, and you know there's a lot of congestion here in New York, but there's cities all around the world who face this big issue of congestion. And the third thing, which is going to end up being, you know, the issue of the century here is just climate change. Mm-hmm. And if you put all of those three together, there's one uh, simple solution. It doesn't solve all those things, but there's a simple, cheap, partial solution to all those issues, and it's the bicycle. And, you know, the bicycle, you know, if you go to a place like Copenhagen, um, if you measure a trip by going to work, going to school, um, going to a friend's house, 35% of trips are taken by bike. In the United States, it's 1.3%. Mm. If you go take a look at the health of those people, it's significantly better than ours. So I think, you know, those three trends make the bi- future of the bicycle look really good. Talk to us a little bit about working with cities and municipalities to make it much more bike-friendly, because I think that's a big problem. It's a big problem, and it's also a big opportunity, because, you know, if you take a look at New York today, New York's got a long ways to go, but if you took a look at New York 20 years ago, it didn't exist. Um, New York's made a lot of progress. Um, There's a long way to go. Every single city you go to today, as opposed 20 years ago, most cities hadn't done anything. If you take a look at them today, a lot of cities have a decent foundation. There's a lot of people who are looking to answers for congestion, for climate change, mm-hmm. for health issues. So more and more cities are getting interested. And we're seeing, you know, I think if you take a look at the last 20 years, there's over 30,000 bicycle projects that have been completed around the United States. It's a lot. It's a lot. Wow. There's a lot more to be done, but we're moving in the right direction and the foundation's been laid. How much electrification of bicycles is going to really help in that momentum? 
Okay, great question. Um, we own a bike sharing business, and one of the places that we have a bike sharing installation is one of our hometowns, Madison, Wisconsin. So Madison, Wisconsin has 350 B-cycles um, in play. We just switched the entire system on June 15th from regular bikes over to electric bikes. Ridership is up 4X, mm. four times. If you ever go out to test ride an electric bike, if you're at a bike shop and you go in and you want to test ride an electric bike, you will come back and out of 100 people, you will see 100 smiles. I have to tell you, I've tried it. Yeah. I loved it. It's I, on the West Coast. It was so much fun. I, I was thinking, I'm not going to like this. I right. loved it. It's, unbel- it's, yeah. it's amazing. And it allows ordinary people to do extraordinary things. You can ride an e-bike Wherever you want, we were in the French Alps this summer, a tour to France, and we were with a couple of friends. Um, and, you know, we had one person who wasn't a strong cyclist, and she rode with us every day. She went up Alpe d'Huez. Yeah. She went up the biggest climbs, and she absolutely loved it. Right. Yeah. Right. It's amazing. So let's talk about one of the other mega trends. And Carol and I have spent a lot of time on our shows and in our respective journalism thinking about this, which is the the wellness and, and the health piece that, yeah. that you talked about. We seem to, amid all of the talk of the obesity rate and things like that, there at least is a part of society, a part of the culture that is really embracing this idea of a much more holistically healthy lifestyle. How do you take advantage of that as a company and be a part of it? Okay, well, I, I think we're not only a part of it, I think we're a leader in it. Mm-hmm. And it all happened at Trek, I think it was uh, maybe 12 years ago. And three things happened in the space of uh, two months. We had a truck driver have a massive heart attack um, driving across Iowa, and it ended his career. He survived, but it was a huge bill, and it ended his career, and he loved working at Trek. Um, we had a woman in our international department who had we had come out with a health program. She had lost 20 pounds, great shape. Her husband, not so much, worked at a different company. In his late 40s, he had a stroke, totally shook up her entire life. And then we had uh, a warehouse manager, Craig Umlin, one of our best uh, workers. He managed one of the warehouses. Um, he was a big guy. He was really tall and really wide. And uh, he died wow. in his 40s. And the death certificate was on my desk and cause of death was obesity. I had the HR guy come into my office and I said, I've had it. We're done. I go, I want a new health program. We're going to put this thing together and we're going to introduce it in less than a month. And in less than a month, I stood in the atrium at Trek and I said to everybody, we're changing the way we look at health. These are the four things we're doing and we're going to make sure that you're healthy. And that was it. So what does that look like? um, It said everybody at Trek has to get a health risk assessment every year. Mm -hmm. We used to make it optional and we get 25% of the people. The 0% body fat club at Trek would all rush in there and and get their – get their health risk assessment done. We said everybody has to do it. And not only you, but your family, because if you're on our health insurance, your family's on the insurance program. Um, We did that. We turned the cafe into a healthy cafe. Uh, For people who were not healthy, we got them uh, coaches for a year. We said, we're going to help you get healthy. Um, We eliminated smoking from anywhere near uh, Trek. We did everything we could. And the impact of it? Unbelievable. So like, if, 
Like what? Yeah. Well, you're taking a look uh, at health healthcare costs. Trex healthcare costs over the last five years have gone down. Wow. Okay. So yeah. I, okay, we keep we have a score for our health because we have all the health risk assessments. Our score has gone up every year. Trek has become a healthier workplace every single year. That's great. You take a look at this country. We pay almost 18 percent of GDP is health, and we have the worst results. In the industrialized world, the most unhealthy people are in America, and we have a government that spends all of its time talking about how we can spend more money on health, and we never talk about how our citizens can become more healthy. Well, I think about how often we have that conversation. I mean, Jason and I both embrace this world big time. You know, what is it going to take to change kind of our approach when it comes to taking care of ourselves? This whole idea of wellness and taking care of yourself so that it doesn't become a problem. And I do wonder, incentives usually get people to where you need them to be. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you just, one is we have a $22 trillion deficit. Um, Number two is we're spending twice as much money as any other country on uh, health, and something has to change in that equation. To me, it needs to be leadership from the government because this can't keep going on. But John, do you penalize employees if they don't do well or they don't sign up for a pro- Like, How does it work? It, the way it works is that we have a program, and it, based on your health risk assessment, if you score really well on your health risk assessment, you pay less for your health insurance. Yeah. Okay, so right. that's what I wondered, because you really need to incentive but, people. But we also take a leadership role and we say, we're going to help you get healthy. Right. We don't leave people out on an island. We give them a big hug yeah. and we say, here we go. And it's it's part of the culture at Trek. And people go, well, you're just a bunch of people who ride bikes. A little carrot and stick. We have a carrot and a stick. Yeah. But there's also a culture... And I think that's what we need in this country is we need a culture of health. Well, speaking of cultures, and we talk about this a lot, too, about the importance of diversity and equality. And you are in town. You're getting the inaugural Champion for Equality Award at this year's Women's uh, Sports Foundation Gala. Talk to us about equality at Trek. Yeah, yeah I think, um, you know, equality is uh, an important issue at Trek. And when you take a look at it, we're involved in a sport. Um, we're also just involved in running a business and we want to make sure that we provide opportunities for everyone, regardless of color, regardless of gender. We want to put the best team on the field. And we're um, really serious about that. When you take a look at sport, um, we're sponsoring a women's cycling team sponsor. Um, and somebody came back from one of the races and they walk into my office and we're, we're having an executive meeting and they're like, do you know what's going on with the women's team we're sponsoring? And I'm like, no. And he's like, well, they don't get paid very much. They show up for the race the day before because the team can't afford to get them there earlier. Mm -hmm. They're only given one bike. They stay in a lousy place. And I'm just like, (laughs) I was embarrassed. Right. I, I just sat in there and I was embarrassed. So we took a different approach to men's cycling where we actually bought a team. And I just said, we're going to buy a team. And so we went out there and we, you know, we totally changed the paradigm in that sport. And we said, we're going to buy a team and we're going to treat the men and the women uh, the same way. And so more broadly in sport, we spent a lot of time, Carol and I did over mm-hmm. the summer, obviously rooting for talking about the U.S. <laughs> women's national team in, yeah. in soccer. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a moment then. There have been a few sports that have started to figure out tennis it being one. 
are we at a moment where this is starting to change or is this something where there's a danger of sort of falling back when it comes to equal compensation, you know, just the very basic sort of equal pay and equal opportunity across sport? You know, I can, I can only talk for the sport that, that we're in and, you know, the sport of cycling is really an old man's sport. Yeah. It's controlled that way. And so, um, you know, when you take a look at the prize money, men's compared to women's, when you take a look at TV, uh, men's compared to women, it's not, it's, it's embarrassing. It still is embarrassing. We're taking our, the portion that we control and we're saying, hey, we're going to make sure they're on an equal level here and we're going to be an example for everybody else. We host a World Cup in Waterloo, a World Club, Cup cyclocross race, and it's equal. It's equal prize money. Yeah. First cycling event ever to have equal prize money. We make a big deal out of it. And all of a sudden, other races are changing. People are seeing what we're doing in professional, and people are making changes. Well, I have to think this has got to be at least partially an element of enlightened self-interest, right? I mean, because you want to sell bikes to women, uh, well, that's too, right? I was right? Just I mean, say, like, this is great that you're doing it, John, but you've yeah. got to be thinking about, like, what's your demographics in terms of where you sell? Is it mostly men? It's, it's You know, it's a lot It's a lot of men, Okay, um, but there's a huge potential market with women. Right. Right. And, you know, women who are in the sport absolutely love being in the sport. Um, and there's there are more and more women who should ride bikes. And Trek can it, there is there's definitely some self interest here. Well and especially when Guilty. You, right. Well I mean <laughs> well, when that's you, okay. But when you start to synthesize this a little bit with again, so sort of going back to the the mega trends around fitness, you think yeah. about boutique fitness, you think about everything that we've seen, the success of even like a Lululemon, you know, yeah. this is women driven yeah. in a lot of ways. The yeah. market is massive. So I have to think, and I'm not, this isn't a criticism. This is just smart business right. in well, a lot of ways. It is. And you know, one of my favorite charts is, is the running business. And if you, if you take a look at running and you go yeah. back to 1980, it was something like a marathoners. It was something like 95% men, 5% women. And all of a sudden you take a look at the running business just explode over the last 25 years. It's all women. Right. Today, there are more women who finish marathons than men. It went from 5% to 55%. Right. And I, I really believe that that could happen in cycling. And so there's there's a moral issue here. There is also a business opportunity. Well, and, and in keeping with that, we're Bloomberg. We like to hear about opportunities. Where, <laughs> where, where is your biggest growth market? I'm just curious because you do sell around the world. We sell around the world. You know, one of the things is, you know, I've worked at Trek for over 35 years. I've never seen the amount of opportunities that Trek has today. Mm. Everywhere? Uh, Almost or, everywhere. I okay. mean, we have so many great things going on as a business. If you go to Europe, the European business is almost three times bigger than the U.S. business. Our market share in the U.S. for premium bikes is, is you know, in the high 20s. Our market share in, in Europe is around six. Um, our business in Europe is growing like a weed. We have a lot of opportunities in Europe. If you go to Asia, um, massive opportunities in Asia. If you take a look at electric bikes, um, that's right. booming all over the world. What about you? The the trade wars that we're seeing because you do also manufacture around the world, right? We do. So tell me, is that impacting you? Yeah, you know we uh, we manufacture really high end bikes in the U.S. We have a large um, manufacturing facility in Germany, which supplies uh, the European market, but we produce a bunch of bikes in China both for all over the world and also the U.S. We're a global company right. that has a global supply cha chain. So, yeah, the the tariff has had a huge impact on Trek. 
The one thing I want to ask you, because I think about your world, private equity, I mean, they I do wonder, family-owned for a long time, yep. I know you want to keep it that way, yep. but I do, I'm curious if you've got people who are knocking on your door, looking at this business, especially as we see the growth in, in fitness. You know, my father, uh, people would ask him about going public, and he'd always had the same answer, and the answer was, I don't need the money, and I don't need the headaches. Right. And I've inherited that view from him. <laughs> What's your biggest single strategic initiative that you as the president have set out for this company? Today? You know, one thing that's become really obvious to me over the last uh, three months is just sustainability. Um, One of the things we have um, different objectives inside the company, and I have my list of 10, and we changed those uh, two months ago. We added becoming a leading sustainability company fast. And right now we're moving Trek is moving fast in a lot of different areas, but the area we're moving fastest in is sustainability. Because? Because the I earth, know it's the right thing to because, do. No, the earth needs it. Yeah. I mean, if you, there's a great move, great documentary, Above and Beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. And I saw that documentary and I just, that was a, a moment for me. I had the, you know, the top 130 leaders at Trek watch that. Um we had uh, Sir Robert Swan, who's walked to both poles, and he's, yeah. he's a big environmentalist. He was at Trek two weeks ago. Um, we've put together a plan, and I think there's about – I went through each item. I think there's about 157 ideas, and I think we narrowed it down to about 50. But we're going to make a difference, and we're going to do it fast. So that was John Burke. He's president of the family-owned Wisconsin-based Trek Bicycle. Again, a company that was co-founded by his dad. And I just love it because he's really thinking about, first of all, his future consumer uh, and certainly thinking about diversity at the firm and the company uh, and thinking about where this market is going. We talked about diversity. We talked about electrification. We talked about so much. Right. It's hard to run a company these days. 2019 keeps you on your toes, but uh, a good conversation with him. We really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week extra. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio. That's live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.